They say everybody has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome, and welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, my co-host and wife, Caitlin, and I will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This week, we'll be discussing My Sister's Keeper by Jodi Picoult, the controversial story about a teenage girl suing her parents for medical emancipation. This book does come with a trigger warning for child abuse and neglect, medical trauma, and sexual assault. We advise cautions for listeners under 13. Now take out your red pins, because we have a couple of notes. My Sister's Keeper was published in 2004. It is the 11th novel out of 26 by American author Jodi Picoult, who, fun fact, has written several issues of Wonder Woman. She frequently centers storylines around moral dilemmas or procedural dramas which pit family members against one another, and My Sister's Keeper is no exception. Approximately 40 million copies of her book have sold worldwide. My Sister's Keeper in particular also became a 2009 American film directed by Nick Cassavetes. Summary time. The story is told through seven POV characters. Andromeda, Anna Fitzgerald, Kate Fitzgerald, Jesse Fitzgerald, Sarah Fitzgerald, Brian Fitzgerald, God, that's a lot of Fitzgeralds, <laughs> Julia Romano, and Campbell Alexander, whose last name is his first name and first name is his last name. <laughs> in the fictional town of Upper Darby, Rhode Island, Anna Fitzgerald's older sister, Kate, suffers from APL, a blood and bone marrow cancer. Anna was born with the help of a geneticist specifically so she could save Kate's life through the donation of her umbilical cord blood. At first, it is successful, but the cancer continues to relapse throughout Kate's life. Thirteen years later, Anna has donated various cells and fluids and marrow to Kate over the years and now learns that Kate needs a kidney, and she is expected to give it. The surgery required for both Kate and Anna would be major. It is not guaranteed to work, and the loss of a kidney could have a serious impact on Anna's life. Anna petitions for medical emancipation with the help of a lawyer, her Campbell Alexander, so she will be able to make her own decisions regarding her medical treatment and the donation of her kidney. At first, Sarah, their mother, believes that Anna's decision is led by a need for attention, but Anna is serious and refuses to withdraw her complaint, so the case has to be discussed in front of a judge. Having been a civil attorney before becoming a mother, Sarah decides to represent herself. The judge assigned to the case is Judge DeSalvo, who the year before lost his 12-year-old daughter because of a drunk driver. So really, he has a pretty personal stake in this case and should not be overseeing it. But here he is. <laughs> he and Sarah also know each other, and she will use this relationship to curry favor repeatedly throughout the story. This is only one example of many examples of legal iffiness in this story. Judge DeSalvo hires Julia Romano, the court-appointed guardian ad litem, whose job it is to decide what would be best for Anna. Julia was once romantically involved with Campbell when they went to high school together, but Campbell broke her heart when he left her. Unbeknownst to Julia, Campbell left her because after an accident that resulted in a concussion, he developed epilepsy and thought she deserved better. Julia then spends most of the book ignoring her responsibility to Anna in favor of rehashing her old relationship drama with Campbell. Hard-hitting stuff. <laughs> Meanwhile, 
Anna's older brother Jesse spends most of his time setting fire to abandoned buildings with homemade explosives, stealing cars, and using illegal drugs. He has been ignored his whole childhood in favor of his sisters, and even his parents admit to giving up on him years ago. That doesn't hurt a child's psyche at all. One time, he accidentally lights a fire and then realizes a homeless man is inside. The fire wasn't an accident, just the homeless man part. So he runs inside to save him, but that does not stop him from setting more fires later. Brian Fitzgerald, the father, is a fire chief and an amateur astronomer who spends most of his time wondering where everything went wrong in his life and generally being a wet blanket. When he realizes Sarah is not going to stop trying to coerce their daughter into dropping her case, he moves Anna into the firehouse with him and agrees to testify for Anna. At one point, he also discovers that Jesse has an arson habit, he has a heart-to-heart -heart with his son, and proceeds to never mention it again. He sweeps a lot of things under the rug. When put on the stand during the hearing, he folds like a card table and moves Anna home before the trial is even over. But he rekindles the spark with his wife, so happy ending for him? During the hearing, it is revealed that Anna is acting under her sister's wishes. Kate is tired of fighting. She's prepared to die, and she doesn't want to force Anna to donate a kidney that will likely not be adequate to save her life. It is important to note, doctors, Kate, various people throughout this story talk about how this kidney is probably not going to help. Immediately after it is revealed that Kate is the one who asked Anna to file this lawsuit, Campbell Alexander has an epileptic seizure, and thanks to this, Julia discovers the reason for their breakup, which leads her to swear to Campbell that he doesn't need to hide his illness from her, and they can be together. Happy ending for them? Brian treats Campbell's seizure, and like the hero he is, Campbell insists on continuing the hearing right away. The judge rules in Anna's favor and grants Campbell a medical power of attorney, Anna hints that she does want her sister to live, and she might still donate the kidney if she thinks it'll work. However, as Campbell is driving her home after the trial, their car is T-boned by a truck. Brian's fire unit is called to the scene, retrieving an unconscious and severely injured Anna from the wreckage of the crushed car. At the hospital, the doctor informs Brian and Sarah that Anna is brain dead, and says they will need to act quickly if they wish to donate her organs. As Campbell is the medical power of attorney, he makes the decision to approve of the procedure, and Kate's life is saved by Anna's donated kidney. Sarah and Brian are devastated. They struggle to cope for the next eight years after Anna's death. During this time, Jesse becomes a police officer. Happy ending for Jesse? And Kate becomes a ballet teacher. The kidney magically cured her. Cancer is no more. Happy ending for Kate. Kate ends the story by reflecting on the tragedy and explaining that she feels deep guilt, but also a bond with the part of Anna inside of her. Now, that concludes the scripted portion of our podcast. We have some other things to mention. First of all, Campbell's dog. Caitlin, would you like to talk about Campbell's dog? So Campbell's dog is a service dog Ogva senses when he is about to have a seizure. It's a running joke that people will tell him Emmy can't have a dog somewhere, and he will invent a joke about how, no, he's not blind, but the dog's for this other thing. <laughs> Julia will make such a big deal about this, it seriously makes you wonder what her issue is. <laughs> and some of, some of the jokes are funnier than others. Some of the jokes are like, oh, I have a metal plate in my head, he keeps me away from magnets. Or, you know, I'm an alcoholic, he keeps me from having a drink. <laughs> But it amounts to a lot of jokes that are somewhat back-to-back -to -back together in story time, and so you really do get hit over the head with the constant dog jokes. <laughs> yeah, so many of them. Service dogs were a vest. <laughs> 
So you wouldn't expect to be inquisited by every person you meet about having a service dog. <laughs> and it's frequently this, like, you can't have a dog in here. Oh, actually, he's a service dog. And they, like, squint at him, and they're like, you don't look blind. And he's like, I'm not blind. This is the made-up reason what this dog is for. And then they look at him like he's crazy, and then he walks away. <laughs> and Julia will act like this is the biggest betrayal that he doesn't tell her what the service dog is actually for. Like, she's entitled to his disability to know why he has a service dog. It's no, it's not her business. It's no one's business. Pro tip, if you see someone with a service dog and you can't immediately tell why they have a service dog, mind your business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, another thing to mention, Sarah's story is told pretty much exclusively through flashbacks. Other people have flashbacks. They have stories that are told through like, oh, you know, Anna remembers when she was six years old and she did this. Jesse remembers when he was 14 and he did this. But they also have stories that are happening in the present. Sarah's story, despite the fact that she is being the counsel, her story is told almost exclusively through memories from the time that Kate is diagnosed with cancer when she is two years old up through the day that they learn she needs a kidney. Sarah doesn't have a lot of time spent on actually like what's happening in the moment and how she feels about this case and how she feels about her daughter and things like that. And the little bit that she does have basically is just a repetition of the same thing over and over again, which is why is my daughter Anna so, 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 so selfish? I need to take care of Kate. Kate is my number one priority. I only care about Kate. And you can't call me a bad mother for only caring about Kate because Kate's the one who's dying and so therefore none of my other ch children's problems matter. By which other children I mean Anna because Jesse who's Jesse. I don't have a son who's Jesse. <laughs> but we'll get more into that when we talk about character development. <laughs> mm -hmm. Other minor things to mention, Julia has a twin sister who just got dumped and is now crashing at her apartment. So her sister doesn't really serve any plot function in the story other than to be a sounding board for Julia. Ditto for a man named Seven, the bartender who Julia meets in the bar. He is a straight man working in a gay bar. Because straight men, the only kinds of men that have piercings? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really weird thing how they, how she discovers she's straight. She wanders into this gay bar. It's called something, it's called something weird like Shakespeare's cat. <laughs> and they, she wanders into this gay bar not realizing it's a gay bar. And she's, she shows up because she's mad about Campbell and she's like, I'm gonna get drunk and I'm gonna get laid. And then she realizes she's accidentally stumbled into a gay bar. There's this like running joke that there's always men just making out in these bars. Um, even when it's like the middle of the day on a Wednesday, you'll just find a couple of guys sitting in a booth somewhere just going at it. Cause that's what gays do, I guess. Um, not my personal experience, but that's how Jody Picoult writes it. But the, the bartender, you know, she thinks he's hot. She's like, oh, he's so hot, he has purple hair, he has a nose piercing. I bet he's not really gay. And he's like, what are you talking about? Of course I am. And she's like, I don't think you are. And he's like, why are you even here? And she's like, it was an accident, but also I don't think you're gay. And then plot twist, he's not. Punk gays? Who ever heard of such a thing? Shocker, gays with septum piercings? What? <laughs> what? There's some slight romantic tension, but it goes absolutely nowhere, and he is nothing more than a sounding board. <laughs> yeah, he disappears about two-thirds through the book. It's like the black hole of plot just sucks him up. She never even thinks about him later on. Like, he's there for two scenes, and then he's gone forever. <laughs> um, so, 
not really much point to him, but he's one of my nitpicks later on, so we'll talk about him. <laughs> so, now that we've covered the bones of the story, let's go over our notes, starting with what works. First of all, the writing is objectively good. No one is ever going to say that Jodie Picoult isn't a very talented writer. She's a very literary and writerly writer, but her imagination is very vivid. It's very, very, lots of imagery. She can paint a picture really well. Um, she's really good at making characters feel three-dimensional. You feel like you know the characters, even if most of them are awful people. <laughs> Oh yes, all the characters feel like a real person, even the characters like Seven the Bartender who only appears for a brief moment, you kind of get a vibe for him. You see him as a real person, even though it's kind of funny that you had to have the stray bartender in a gay bar. <laughs> yeah, or like there's another character, um, Vern. He's the sheriff of this small town, but he's also the bailiff at the courthouse. But he's also like an old friend and neighbor of the Fitzgeralds. So you see him a few times, and he only really speaks to the Fitzgeralds, like, once, whenever he has to serve them with the papers, saying, like, Hey, Sarah, Brian, your daughter's suing you. But they do such a good job of, like, kind of fleshing him out in the two minutes that they introduce him, that every time he shows up after that as the bailiff, just to open doors, call, you know, all rise, whatever else he's doing, you're like, Burn! Hey, buddy! Um, so she does have- she does do really well with that. And it makes it sad whenever certain characters do disappear into the black hole. Because it's like, where'd they go? Mm-hmm. Yep, you set this character, you made us feel for them, and they'll never be seen or heard from again. <laughs> yeah. There's- there's other characters they set up, like, Jesse has a friend who's homeless in the first, like, third of the book. Um, he has a friend who's homeless that lives under an overpass, and he goes and hangs out with him sometimes, and at one point he makes him an accomplice in his arson, mm -hmm. and then he- we never see him again. At one point, Jesse makes him an accomplice in his arson. He's the guy who tells Jesse, like, dude, someone lives in that shack. Another homeless man lives in that shack. And Jesse's like, oh no, I am trying to commit arson and property destruction, not murder. So he has to run in and save the guy. And then we never see that guy ever again. Like, where'd he go? Is he still homeless? Did he get in trouble for this? We know that the fireman found the injured man. Was the homeless man still around? Did he take the rap for Jesse? We don't know. We will never know. And I feel sad about it. <laughs> oh yeah. You feel for every person you meet because the descriptions are so vivid, the settings are so vivid. Mm -hmm. It's as though you're really standing there watching the story unfold. Yes. Yeah, even Julia's sister who just got dumped, like, I feel bad for her <laughs> in her relationship because they talk about little things that she did, like, apparently she went back for, you know, goodbye sex with her girlfriend right after they broke up. And I'm just like, you poor thing. She's like sitting there watching some old movie and she's like reciting the lines and eating popcorn and crying and i'm just like you're a wreck aren't you honey <laughs> and here your sister is just talking about like oh my ex-boyfriend from high school is here and that means i can't do my job meanwhile you're like i just broke up with my girlfriend of four years and also i make jewelry out of hardware do you think my life is good <laughs> no sympathy whatsoever for this poor woman <laughs> 
I think something else that worked really well in this story is the balance between humor and tragedy. We're talking about really heavy topics here when it comes to emancipation and, and the trauma that Anna has gone through over her entire life. I've, and Joni Picoult does a very good job of weaving humor into the story in a way that doesn't feel callous. It is or insensitive, but still relieves the tension. And so that it's not just dark and melodramatic all the way through. And she brings the humor in through the right people. Mm -hmm. Like, Anna is not a particularly funny character. Because she's dealing with some shit. <laughs> but, like, Jesse can be a funny character. Especially when he interacts with Julia. Because Julia is, like, 30 years old. But apparently she's very pretty. And Jesse is 17 and just so inexplicably horny. <laughs> he relentlessly flirts with this older person, so you know he has mommy issues. He harasses her. Oh my god, it's- she shows up and she's like, I need to talk to you about Anna and this lawsuit and your family dynamic. And he's like, I need to talk to you about what a babe you are. <laughs> um, it is pretty funny. And Jodie Picoult does write really well for a variety of characters. <laughs> mm -hmm. Old, young, different walks of life. <laughs> They all feel equally real and fleshed out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like, you you can go between Sarah to Jesse, who are two completely different people. You know, one of them's a middle-aged, previously lawyer mom, and the other one's this 17-year-old delinquent child. But they both feel real. You almost wouldn't know they were written by the same person. Another thing, and so that, that goes into another note, which is that this is a consistent mm -hmm. story. Because... You know, if you're reading a chapter that's in Jesse's point of view, it's in Jesse's point of view. And you know you're reading Jesse. Mm -hmm. If it's in Sarah's point of view, you know you're reading Sarah. Yes, the POV is very consistent. Mm -hmm. As well as metaphors and flashbacks that she uses, she uses those tools and she uses them consistently and she sticks with them. Like, she had a couple of symbols that she really wanted to get through. Fire stars, mm -hmm. cancer, obviously, death. The Legend of Andromeda. Mm -hmm. The Legend of Andromeda, that was a big one. And she really pushed on those. Rain was another big one, rain and storms. And she really pushes them, and, like, you cannot get away from them. They are in every chapter. They don't always work, but they're consistent, and I have to give her that. <laughs> Credit where credit's due. The writing is very consistent, very clean. Mm -hmm. Ina, when she has a metaphor, she will stick to it the entire way through. <laughs> yes. And most of the medical things mm -hmm. are really well researched. Oh, yeah. Like, there's a few things, like the courtroom scene, and there will be a little or very sizable medical niche. <laughs> at the end, but overall, when she talks about cancer in particular, you can feel the effort that she put into researching for this story. Yeah, and in interviews, she talks about how she interviewed... What's what's a cancer doctor called? Something with an O. Or oncologist? Isn't that for intestines? Is that for intestines? Oh gosh, we look like dum-dums. Okay, um, <laughs> someone, someone tell us in the comments what a cancer doctor is called because i keep wanting to say an orthopedist but i know that that's feet um and then there's orthodontist <laughs> and then there's orthodontist which is which plays a big role in this book and orthodontist does play a big role in this book but that's teeth <laughs> that's braces and stuff 
Let's get back to the point. <laughs> um, anyways, getting back to the point, as you can see, we are not medical experts, but Jodi Picoult consulted a lot of medical experts for this, and she consulted some legal experts as well on laws about medical emancipation for children and organ donors and things like that. So you can tell that she did her research about the important parts of this book. However, <laughs> this does lead into some of our mm, critiques. <laughs> critiques, yes. Some of the moments where we felt the book was a little less successful. So now that we've discussed what works, get out your red pens, let's edit. Regarding the research, mm -hmm. some of the things are very well researched and some of the things are not. For example, mm -hmm. in the end, when Anna has to get, I'm sorry, I'm laughing thinking about it. <laughs> when, it's not funny, it's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's not funny, but it's a little funny. After Anna has had her accident and they've made the decision to harvest her organs, we get to see the scene where Brian and Sarah sit with her and she's brain dead and she's on life support and they're gonna turn off her life support. And as they are sitting there getting ready to turn off her life support, Sarah remarks that she has already been to surgery and had her organs removed. Not just her kidney, her organs. Because they are going to go help not just Kate, but several children, she says. So somehow we have an alive body on this table. It's brain dead, but it's alive on this table with no organs. I refuse to believe that there was not a child in need of hearts and lungs. <laughs> I feel like you could take most everything out and they'd be fine for a couple hours. Like you take the kidneys out or something, she's immediately gonna go John to see. But like heart and lungs, you're telling me there's not a single child in the entire east coast of America that is in need of a heart or lungs. She's 13 too, so she's like the perfect size to go up, go down. You know, they're not even gonna like donate it to science, something. That they kept her alive. They either kept her alive without her heart and lungs, or they just decided to pull her life support after and let the keep at the doctors keep in the heart and lungs so they could have this moment, but it just makes no sense. <laughs> and we know that the heart is still there because Sarah very vividly describes, and it's an emotional moment. It would have made me cry if it wasn't for the fact that I was already focusing on the fact that the heart shouldn't be there. Sarah has this beautiful moment where she, she puts her hand on Anna's heart and she can feel Anna's heart fluttering and beating and she can feel the moment that it stops beating which would be such a sad moment if I wasn't sitting there thinking about how the fact that that heart should have already been taken out. Mm -hmm. And there's really no reason this shouldn't have been before the surgery. <laughs> yeah, like there's no reason why they couldn't have gone in and said goodbye to their daughter before they went to go take her organs away. I can buy the idea that maybe they needed to keep her alive to take the organs out and she would have died on the table while they were taking out the organs because maybe, you know, sepsis or something but I do not believe that they took all her organs out and then brought her back downstairs. Like, again, not a medical expert. Best reference I have is like a lot of Grey's Anatomy. But it's just not logical. And just doesn't make sense to me. Mm -mm. If, we're, if we're lucky enough to have a surgeon 
or someone listening to this, you tell me. Is that something they do? Do they take all the organs out and then turn off the life support? I feel like not. But we've talked about that maybe long enough. <laughs> Let's move over to metaphors and flashbacks. The metaphor for fire in this book is hammered over the head literally at the beginning of every chapter. Jolie Picoult even admits in an interview that she just went searching for quotes about fire to put at the beginning of each chapter. And it doesn't really contribute to the overall reading experience. Yes, fire, rain, and stars. And flashes. Those were, the, those were her four things that she says she went looking for quotes. So that she could start each section of the book with a quote about that thing. And there are times when... They just, they don't make any sense. <laughs> She'll have a quote, like, uh, there's a quote from, from Shakespeare, and I cannot for the life of me remember it right now, but there is a quote from Shakespeare about basically how if you put out a small fire, you can put it out with not a lot of water. But if you look at a small fire and you're like, oh, that's a small fire, it'll probably put itself out, and you leave it, It'll grow, and it'll become a really big fire, and then you can't put it out. And it's like, what is that supposed to be referring to? Is that cancer? Is cancer the small fire that becomes a big fire? Is it Anna? Is Anna the fire? Is it their family's relationship dynamic? Yeah, there's so much fire, and it gets to the point where, at some points, she's not even trying to be subtle about it. One of Brian's chapters actually begins with the phrase, quote... Fire and hope are connected, just so you know. And then he proceeds to tell the story of Prometheus, but he tells it all the way through to Pandora. So, for those of you that don't know the story of Prometheus, here's a little Greek history lesson. The story of Prometheus goes that way back in Greek mythology, beginning of the world type stuff, Prometheus was a god, and he created humans out of, like, clay. And he specifically only created men. He created men out of clay. And the men were like, hey, we're men, we're running around. Wow, it's really dark and cold on the planet Earth and we don't like it. And Prometheus was like, don't you worry, I have fire, enjoy. And they were like, fire, this is great. We can do so many cool things with fire. But then Sky Daddy Zeus was like, what the heck Prometheus, you gave them fire? No, I disagree not allowed. I wanted them to be stupid like animals. Now they're smart and they're asking questions and they're thinking and I don't like it. So he chained Prometheus to a rock and gave him this regenerating liver, which is their explanation by the way for why your liver regenerates. Because I don't know if you knew, but if you cut out a piece of your liver, it grows back. And so they did the thing, they chained him to a rock, cut open his belly, and then this freaking eagle comes in and eats his liver every day, and then every night it grows back, and then he comes back and he eats his liver again the next day. And because he's a god, he doesn't die, and so he just lives with that forever and ever and ever. Really sad story for Prometheus. But then the story goes on that following that, God wanted to further punish humans because he was like, they have fire now, they have it way too good, I don't like it. I know, we'll give them women. <laughs> I know, we'll give them women. Women will ruin everything. So he creates the first woman, Pandora. As per usual, we blame women for everything. <laughs> so he creates the first woman, and he puts everything bad he can think of in a box. Disease, famine, 
war, anger, hate. It's all in this box. And for some reason he also puts hope in there. Because, you know, hope. Puts it all in the box. Gives it to Pandora and says, here, this is your responsibility now. It's got a lot of cool shit in it. Don't open it. And then he also curses her with curiosity. So you have this young woman who's just been born. She's the only woman in a world of men. So you know the men are just being like freaky about it. And she's got this box that she's been told has lots of cool stuff in it. Cool but dangerous. And it's all hers, but don't open it. So naturally, she opens it. And all the bad things start flying out. And she's like, this is bad. Sometimes it's not a box, sometimes it's a jar, depending on which story you read. And she's like, this is bad, so she closes it. But all the bad stuff already got out, and the only thing that's left inside of it is hope. And that's his story of how fire and hope are connected. I feel like just the phrase fire and hope are connected made sense without all of that, but we wasted all that time on that. And he told it longer than I did. <laughs> and in a more boring fashion. Like, everyone already knows that hope and fire, like if you've taken a high school English class, you kind of know that hope and fire go together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the fire burns is a symbol of hope. Yeah, fire- You need to overcomplicate it. Yeah, you know, fire is a sign of life, it's a sign of hope. I mean, there's so many different ways in which fire symbolizes hope and life, but also destruction. And, and also, at this point, we're halfway through the book, we've already been hit over the head with that so much. What would have been more interesting is to learn how fire is connected to him personally, because we never really know what he means by it on a personal level. Exactly, especially him being a fireman. <laughs> we don't know why he became a fireman. We don't know what his personal connection to fire is. He talks a lot about how fire is symbolic of his life, but we don't know how it's personal to him. And that's the way a lot of this symbolism goes. Symbolism is used as a substitute for real emotion. Yeah. He talks about the stars a lot, he loves the stars, but we don't know why he loves the stars so much. Why does he see comfort in there? Yeah. Speaking of Greek mythology, the legend of Andromeda comes up because Anna's name is short for Andromeda, which Brian gave to her. <laughs> but his reasons for giving her the name Andromeda don't really make sense in the context of the actual story. Or if they do, it's kind of ironically. Yeah. He describes Andromeda as being up in the sky in between her parents, and as being this sacrificial hero of sorts. But the problem with that is, Andromeda was sacrificed by her parents to the gods to make up for their own mistakes. And then she was rescued from them. Yeah. The story of Andromeda goes that her mother made a huge mistake by bragging that she and her daughter were hot shit, and Poseidon got mad about it, and was like, oh, you think you're so cool? I will flood your village. And they were like, please don't. Here, we'll sacrifice our daughter to your sea monster. <laughs> and that, to me, that fits perfectly for Anna's actual storyline. It does until the very end. If the setup for the story was supposed to be Anna needs to be rescued by her parents from... From her parents. From her parents by Perseus. That fits very well with Anna seeking out Campbell Alexander's help. But then they kill her off in the end for shock value. Yeah, he's even got a dog that could be like little Perseus. <laughs> little Perseus the dog. I love him. <laughs> you know, even like freaking Julia's big curly hair could be symbolic of Medusa. You know, Perseus slayed Medusa. Except in this case, Perseus slept with Medusa. <laughs> you know, it's like 
there's all this stuff that could match up and could be cool symbolism, but it's not. Because why would Brian name his daughter after Andromeda and put himself as the villain of that story? Yeah, like the mother in that story, her eventual eternal punishment is to be trapped to a chair that's like basically a sitting down version of crucifixion, which fits very well with Sarah's never-ending martyr complex. We'll get more into that. (laughs) But when they actually talk about it, he's like, oh, we named her Andromeda because Andromeda was a beautiful princess and she's between her parents in the sky. And also it's like, she wasn't a pretty, pretty princess who was loved by everyone. She was a human sacrifice who had to be rescued from her parents who decided that her life wasn't worth the greater good or whatever which is which is anna <laughs> that's anna to a t but then she dies at the end breaking away from the initial metaphor <laughs> yeah it's like it'd be like if the story of andromeda ended with perseus flying up and being like what's going on here and they were like no 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 it's okay that we're sacrificing her the village will be flooded if we don't and he was like oh carry on then Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Sarah, because I don't think we can resist talking about her anymore. And let me be clear from the beginning. The problem is not that there is a hateable character in this novel. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the author, and to some extent a good portion of the readers, huge portion of the readers, don't realize that Sarah is a terrible person and she never grows from it. If you want to write a morally gray character, have them evolve over the story to be worthy of redemption in the end. And have their have their motivations and their actions be balanced enough. That's what makes something morally gray is if there's enough of a balance between the good and the bad that you understand why they do bad things. Like freaking who am I thinking of? Batman. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I consider Batman to be a morally gray character. He's a billionaire, he could just use his money to clean up the streets, and he does try. But also he goes out and he fights bad guys and punches them in the streets. But like, you understand why he does it. He had a rough childhood, and you know, he's got a lot of trauma. So you know, he's a good guy who does some morally questionable things. Sarah is not Batman. No, the sole basis for Sarah is a balanced character, and I think the writer's opinion is Sarah does everything she does for one of her children, so that should balance out all the rest of the bad things she does to the other two. But of course, what any good parent will tell you, you shouldn't play favorites with your children, not even if one of them is dying. <laughs> it's one thing when there's an immediate danger, it's one thing, like, one child is literally about to fall off a cliff, and the other one's like, Mommy, can you open this pickle jar? Mm-hmm. Then there's clear priorities. But when you have a situation of one child is dying of cancer, very sad, difficult, another child is suing you for medical emancipation because they feel like you literally would rather them die than their sister, and clearly have some serious issues, and your third child is almost committing murder. That's the moment where you need to realize that all three of your children have needs. Mm -hmm. But Sarah doesn't. At no point 
in this book does she ever acknowledge that all of her children have needs, especially when it comes to Jesse. Poor Jesse <laughs> is just the most neglected little bastard <laughs> in the whole world. Keeping in mind, he is only 17 when the story takes place, and Sarah admits that she gave up on him years ago. Years ago. He's not even a legal adult yet. And she has given up on him. She stuck him above the basement so she didn't have to look at him anymore. The garage. <laughs> they... they they moved him out of the house into the garage apartment just so that he could be away and wouldn't bother them. Because they were like, you're drinking and doing drugs and stuff, and rather than deal with that, we're just gonna put you over there so that when you come home puking and, you know, ODing and whatever else it is you're doing, it's over there where it's not gonna wake up Kate. Because <laughs> we're sick of that. There's one point during the legal case where they actually tried to weave in, no, we tried to help. We sent him off to a farm when he was 14. We had this therapist look at him. Clearly she did nothing for him because he's worse off now than he has ever been. The therapist is really bad, by the way. That therapist character is the worst. No, I didn't buy her for one second. She is obviously a quack. She's very quacky. The, the therapist character comes in and she's like, I'm completely on Sarah's side because the way I see it, nothing would be more damaging to this family than Kate dying. Therefore, any action Sarah could possibly take that keeps Kate alive, regardless of what damage it might seem to do on the outside, is actually the right move. Because no one in this family would ever recover if Kate died. I don't buy it. I don't buy it one bit. Kate has been dying since she was two years old. And I'm not saying that if someone has cancer, you should just give up on them. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Of course not. But I am saying that... Death hurts a family. That is completely true. Like, moment of sadness to open up. My cousin died in a horrible accident a few years ago. And it really rocked our family. And some of us still haven't really recovered. But life does go on. Life does continue. It's not a situation where you can just say, well, no matter what the consequences kill everybody else to keep this one child alive because them surviving is the most important thing to this family and no amount of trauma that these 14 years of treatment and of waiting for her to die none of that is going to affect them as bad as it will if she just dies like by this point in the case kate is suicidal anna as miserable. One of the sisters, either Kate or Anna, has considered murdering the other at least once, and we're not sure which one because it's told from a prologue that we don't get told who the point of view character is. I think it's Kate personally, which means Kate has considered killing Anna just so that she doesn't have a universal donor to save her. That scene really doesn't make sense in the context of the end of the book. <laughs> it really doesn't, not at all. Uh, meanwhile, Jesse is out here almost killing other people, Drinking himself to death, doing drugs, making moonshine in a crock pot, <laughs> making moonshine in a crock pot, blowing up schools. He's having a terrible time, obviously. Like, nobody in this family is okay. And I don't believe any of them have ever seen a therapist. <laughs> exactly. None of them are okay. None of them have coping skills. So, this therapist clearly didn't do a very good job. And also, you get this vibe from this family that no matter what 
the outcome of this kidney situation is, if Kate goes into remission and gets better, they're just going to be waiting for her to get sick again. This family lives in a constant state of fear. And several of the characters talk repeatedly about how, as sad as it would be for Kate to die, it would honestly be a relief for their family. And that's not a good thing. And you want Kate to get better, you want Kate to find a miracle cure. But the fact that this therapist is over here saying, this family is totally fine, nothing bad has happened to this family, and all they need is for Kate to get better, and all their problems will go away. Malarkey. Mm-hmm. Absolute malarkey. Better or not, Kate is not the root of this family's problems, and she is not the cure to these problems. Getting Kate a kidney is not going to fix this family's problems, and Kate dying is not going to fix this family's problems. And Anna dying certainly doesn't fix this family's problems. <laughs> So, just screw that therapist. Back to Sarah. Mm -hmm. Back to Sarah. Because, as we said, she neglects her children. Yeah, I think we need to give some top examples of Sarah being a terrible mother. <laughs> yes, she neglects her children. She abuses her children. Here's a few examples. Let's go, let's go children. So, Jesse first. Here's all the things that happened to poor Jesse. For starters, he's four years old when Kate is diagnosed with cancer. We see Kate's diagnosis from Sarah's point of view in one of her many flashbacks. It's actually her first flashback chapter. And up until Kate is diagnosed, she talks about how perfect her little family is. And she talks about Jesse. And, you know, she's so happy and everything. And then the moment it shows that something could be wrong with Kate, it's like Jesse doesn't exist. She literally does not think about him again of her own volition. Yeah, for the rest of the chapter, she doesn't think about him again. And in the next chapter where they're back in the hospital, the only time she thinks about him is when he has to give blood to see if he's a match for Kate so that she can get some blood cells from him. And she thinks to herself, it was so hard when Kate had to give blood, but now that it's Jesse and I'm desensitized to this, I just wish he'd stop squirming. Yeah, because when Kate has to get blood drawn, she's sad about it. She doesn't want a needle in her arm. And she's like, oh, my poor baby, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Two days later, they're back at the hospital with Jesse getting blood in his arm. And he's like, mom, I don't want to, I don't want to get blood in my arm, I'm scared. And even like, even once the doctor talks to him, he's like, hey, you could be a hero. If this blood matches, it could save your sister's life. So he's trying to be calm, but he's crying, he's upset, he's squirming because he's a four-year-old boy. He is a four-year-old child. They don't like needles. I don't like needles. You know, and she just thinks it's so hard to feel sorry for him. Yes, that's the exact quote. She says it is so hard to feel sorry for him because, you know, what Kate is going through is obviously worse. So therefore, no empathy for my four-year-old who's having to deal with this. No care whatsoever. At one point, she remarks that she doesn't know what she's going to do with Jesse. And like what happens is she has to go somewhere and her sister has shown up and her sister's like, I'm going to watch Jesse for you guys. Cause you know, Kate has cancer and is going to need lots of treatments and stuff. And who's going to watch Jesse for you. And she admits she had not given a single thought to who was going to take care of Jesse during the six weeks that Kate was going to be in and out of the hospital, getting all kinds of things done and was going to need her parents. <laughs> This is pretty much the stance she'll take on him for the rest of the book. <laughs> yes. 
The next time we see her really interact with Jesse is Jesse has a memory from when he's 10. Mm-hmm. He talks about how, I don't remember what the trigger was, but something caused him to decide that he needed to just leave the house. I think he was trying to get his parents' attention for something, and they were like, not now, not now, not now, not now, 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 no, no, no. You know, just ignoring him like they usually do. So he left their house and walked several miles until he was downtown in the middle of a busy intersection, just because he wanted to go somewhere where someone might notice that he was there. So his response was, I'm going to walk until I can find the busiest intersection I can and stand in traffic because then someone's bound to notice me, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the first time he was arrested. I think one of the most truly horrific moments is when Kate is a little bit not feeling well. She's pretty much fine, but Sarah is worried. She's tired. And more importantly, Sarah is depressed. Sarah never seeks out help for her depression, nor does she call on help from neighbors or her sister, who has repeatedly offered her help, to care for him. Jesse is reminding her that he needs to go to an orthodontist appointment, and he needs to get new ukleets so that he can go to soccer. Sarah decides that she's not feeling it and tells him that he won't be going to soccer because she's not up to taking him, and that she won't be taking him to the orthodontist because Kate's not feeling well. Again, Kate is just tired. And also, Kate doesn't have to go. Brian's home. Mm Mm-hmm. This affects Jesse so strongly that he tries to remove his braces himself with a fork, causing his mouth to bleed. We never get to see Sarah's response to this. We never see any change in behavior. This is just another incident of Sarah neglecting Jesse. I actually wrote down that scene, and I'd like to read it. I'm gonna warn you guys though, it's a little gory. So like, if that's not your thing, just skip forward 30 seconds. Because this is what the scene actually says. She opens the bathroom door and says, blood covers Jesse's mouth, a vampire's lipstick. Bits of wire stick out like seamstresses' pins. I notice the fork he is holding and realize this is what he has used to pull off his braces. Now you never have to take me anywhere, he says. That is the end of the chapter. Mm-hmm. It's never mentioned again. Mm-hmm. Also, right before this, we get the lovely sentiment of, for the first time in my life, I began to understand how a parent might hit a child. Yeah, because he's being so annoying. And he's, you know, he's told her off, basically, of, you know, how come Kate is always first on your list? How come I always have to make sacrifices for Kate? You know, like an 11-year-old boy would do, like an 11-year-old child would do, because they're children and they don't understand, like, Mom, why do I have to not go to the orthodontist and to get my new cleats just because Kate is tired? She doesn't have to come. He doesn't get it, and he's frustrated after years and years of this behavior, so he calls her out on it. And her response is, I could hit you right now. I sure would like to, you know. I sure do wish I could slap my child. Hot take, hitting a child is never okay. (laughs) Never. It's never okay. And if you find yourself in a position where you are thinking, wow, I sure do wish I could hit my child, it would make my life so much easier if I could just beat them into submission That is a sign that you are taking on too much as a parent and you need to reach out to someone you trust, a friend, a family member, childcare facility, CPS, someone, and get help. Mm -hmm. Get a babysitter for the night, take some you time, have a bubble bath, something to relax. 
It doesn't make you a bad parent for having a brief thought, but it does make you a bad parent if you recognize that your mental health is failing and it's hurting your family and you don't do something to stop it. And that is the big problem with Sarah when it comes to Jessie. She sees the pain and she just ignores it. She is constantly burnt out. She is constantly not okay. And yet she refuses help over and over and over. And she does not care how it hurts her children, unless it's Kate. And then she has the nerve to turn around and say to the camera, I love all my children, no matter how it looks. Mm -hmm. Speaking of her hitting her children, though, that actually does happen on screen in this book. Mm -hmm. Anna, yeah, Anna gets hit. Anna gets hit in this book. As soon as it, it happens in front of Brian, too. Brian sees Sarah just slap Anna right across the face. Big ol' slap. Leaves a big handprint on her face. And he's like, well, that never happened. <laughs> I think he might have been actively trying to restrain her, but he definitely never brings it up again. And let me tell you, that is the moment he should have moved, moved Anna into the firehouse. It would have made more sense at that point in time than waiting for it to get more serious. <laughs> yeah, he's, he doesn't move her out of the house for another day or two after that. He waits a good while before he moves her out of the house. I think it's two days before he makes the decision to be like, we're gonna go stay at the firehouse for a little while. After the slap, he's just like, Anna, go to your room. And Anna, by the way, was not like, you know how sometimes you see those movies or TV shows where like a teenager is being really mouthy and really rude and they say something like so shocking that when their parents slaps them, you almost feel like they weren't thinking at all. And you wonder like if you would have done the same thing and you know it's wrong, you know it's absolutely wrong and you know there's no way that would ever be okay and you know it's gonna traumatize the kid, but you kind of, get it just because you're like, wow, that was such a horrible, horrible thing to say to someone. I'm not surprised that words failed you in that moment and you lashed out physically. Anna doesn't do anything like that. She's just like standing there. You know, this is right after Sarah has received the lawsuit pamphlet. Yes. It's not necessarily directly after, but it's right after they get home. And when Anna refuses to back down instantly, Sarah hits her. Yeah. And she never apologizes for it. Yeah, Sarah's like, this is ridiculous, you're not really suing us. And Anna's like, actually, yes, I am. I think Anna might have implied that Sarah doesn't care about her. Sarah then responds to this by hitting her. So obviously it was true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, that's, that doesn't help your case. Also, side note, Julia is supposed to be examining this family's dynamic and, like, if it's a safe environment for... Anna and all this other stuff, and yet no one that she talks to, including Anna, ever mentions Le Slap. Yeah, you think this would be super relevant to this current court case that's going on, but it never gets brought up again. Yeah, Anna never mentions it to her lawyer, to Julia, Brian never mentions it. It is never, ever mentioned again. It happens, and then it is never discussed again. So that's a big one. When she's not slapping Anna, Sarah spends a lot of this case pressuring Anna to drop the case, which is already bad enough just because, you know, Sarah refuses to recognize the damage that she's done. But also considering the fact that Sarah is opposing counsel. She is representing herself in this case as a lawyer. She is the opposing counsel for this case. So she is actively violating now, granted, 
it's Anna's fault for talking to her. Because, really, it's more like an Anna, you're not supposed to talk to her, but it's still very judicially iffy. She was explicitly asked by the courts not to uh, discuss this case with Anna. Yes. The, The judge says on their very first meeting, there will be no discussion of this case in your home and without Ms. Anna's counsel present. And Sarah's like, of course. Two hours later, so honey, you're gonna drop the case, right? Mm-hmm. Then she gets dragged back into court to go before the judge to explain herself <laughs> for violating the judge's request, and he gives her nothing more than the slap on the wrist. And then that evening, she does the same thing! She does it again. And that evening, she does the thing where she's like, Hey, you know, it's alright, Anna. We can just stop. We can stop. This can all be over. And Anna gets so excited. She's like, oh my god. I don't have to donate a kidney. I'm not going to be forced into doing something I don't want to do. Everything's okay. I can relax at last. And then she realizes what her mother means is, you can just drop the case and donate the kidney and stop being so damn difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, she insists to herself for an extremely long time that Anna is solely doing this for attention. And then even after she realizes it's because that Anna has truly been traumatized by the amount of visits she's had to spend at the hospital, and the fact that Sarah literally refuses to let her live her own life so that she can constantly be on call to donate to Kate at any given moment. (laughs) But even though she kind of starts to see that at the end, she never makes it right. Yeah, we see several examples also of Anna missing out on just normal kid things because she has to do things for Kate. We see her getting pulled away from a birthday party because she has to go donate blood cells. We see her not getting to go to a hockey camp that she she loves hockey. She has she doesn't get to go to hockey camp because what if Kate needs something while you're gone? Which actually could have been a big future for her. She got a scholarship. She was really good at hockey. <laughs> yeah. It was one of her many passions. And it was one of the reasons why she didn't want to donate the kidney, because when you donate a kidney, one of the things you're told to not do is to stay away from high contact sports, like hockey. Mm -hmm. So she'd be giving up one of her biggest passions by giving up this kidney. She'd also be looking at other medical issues for the rest of her life, you know, one kidney. Like, you can live with one kidney, but it doesn't make it easy. But that was one of the big things for her was hockey was her escape. It was her passion. It was her love. And her mother's like, sorry, no more hockey for you. Kate needs a kidney. No, I don't care. I really can't stress enough how much I felt as a reader. Like Sarah does not care about any of her children except for Kate. Yeah. And she she uses the phrase with Anna a lot. What did we do to deserve this? Why are you doing this to us? It's like, she's not doing this to you. She's doing it for herself. But in Sarah's mind, Anna is strictly doing this to punish her. To punish her for either something she did or something she didn't do. And she does not let that idea go. And she never apologizes. It's even addressed in the epilogue that Sarah never got to apologize to Anna for any of it. And it's only after Anna dies that she starts to feel remorse for her behavior. Yeah. It just really sucks watching her character arc and having her repeatedly double down on all the bad things she does. And when it gets to the time for her to make her final statement for the court case, you think, finally, we're gonna see her character art come to fruition. She's going to apologize for Anna. She's gonna tell her she doesn't have to do this anymore. She's gonna realize after seeing it all laid out in front of her how damaging all of this has been to Anna. But instead, what do we get? 
I realized that maybe I might have kind of sort of made some mistakes as a mother and I do it all again as a heartbeat. Yeah. Because there were no right decisions here. Yeah, there's no right decisions. What could anyone do in this case? You just don't understand. I'm a cancer mother. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you don't. You could never understand. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a child with cancer, you could never understand what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Which, I see that narrative brought up in storylines like this in movies and TV shows and stuff a lot. And I've talked about it with people I know who have had cancer, who have had children with cancer. And yeah, there are some situations where you don't know what the right thing to do is, but sacrifice your other child is never the right answer. Mm-hmm. Also, there's several moments where Sarah has the option to be a decent mother to Anna, to make what Anna's going through just a little bit easier, and she chooses not to. Like, at one point, Anna is six years old. She is giving bone marrow, which bone marrow is described in this book, and based on Jodie Picoult's research, I'm willing to believe that this is what it's actually like, as you get put on a table, you get put to sleep, and then they stick a massive needle in your back. Um, I think it was several massive needles. It might have been many, and she had to do it multiple times. And she had to do it multiple times, in like your back or your hips or something, so they can pull the marrow out of your bones. So Anna is a child, a little child. She is six or seven years old, little child, and she has to donate bone marrow. And they've got her on the table, and they're gonna put her under, and she's begging her mother, you're not gonna leave me, right? You're gonna stay right here by my side the whole time. You're not gonna leave me. And she's like, of course I'm not gonna leave you. Of course I'm not gonna leave you. Of course I'm not gonna leave you. As soon as she's asleep, she leaves her. To go to Caden, who has people with her right now to take care of her. Yeah, who is not currently undergoing a procedure, who has people with her, who is perfectly fine. But Kate needs me more right now. When Anna asks to see her when she wakes up, her only thought throughout the entire time is how can I get back to Kate as fast as possible? Yeah. Anna is in genuine pain right now. Physical pain. (laughs) And she tries to fix the pain by going and yelling at a nurse that she needs to give Anna better pain meds. But that's all she does. She does not stay with Anna and comfort her in any way. She doesn't provide her any emotional support. She actually abandons her a second time so she can go find a nurse to yell at. On the one hand, it's like, okay, you're being a protective mother, you're trying to do something, but at the same time, it feels like you're trying to just solve the problem so you can leave. Because as soon as she makes sure that Anna's gonna get her better pain meds, she leaves again. And she's like, hey, Brian, you take care of this child, I'm going back to Kate now. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Kate's asleep. Kate doesn't need her. But back to Kate I go. Where's Jesse? We don't know. Nope. Uh, Probably in Canada by now. Could be. Maybe he walked to another intersection. <laughs> Maybe he's starting a fire. Maybe he's trying crack for the first time. He's th- like, what, nine? About the right time. <laughs> I think one of the most heartbreaking moments of Sarah emotionally abandoning Anna is when she once again tries to emotionally manipulate Anna into donating Kitty in front of her lawyer. And when Anna says that she's not going to do it, it and is looking at her with these begging eyes, pleading for comfort, she immediately leaves again. And it feels like it's to punish her. <laughs> mm-hmm. It feels like she intentionally withholds emotional comfort and support from Anna whenever she's angry with her because she wants to hurt her. Yeah, and it's really just heartbreaking. And you see time and again that her father is the person Anna goes to for comfort. It is always Brian that she goes to for any kind of comfort. Or sometimes Jessie, if she just needs somewhere to hide out. She never, ever turns to her mother when she needs comfort or guidance for anything because 
all her mother ever does is manipulate her. We even see this scene that is supposed to be touching, I think, but it still reads in the context as manipulative, which is this scene about when Kate and Anna are young. They share a bedroom. They get that sitcom idea to put a line of tape down the middle of the room to divide up your side, my side. You know, I don't know, maybe they saw it on TV, but they decide to do that. And Anna doesn't realize that she's getting the raw end of the deal because Kate's side of the room has the door on it. But she's young and stupid and Kate is older and smarter than her and is like, I don't care that you got the toy box, I have the door. <laughs> have fun being stuck in this room forever. And leaves. And now Anna is stuck on the inside of the bedroom and is like, I don't want to be a bad sister crossing the line, but I need to leave the room. I gotta go eat lunch. I gotta go to the bathroom. I gotta do things. It's a big world out there for a four-year-old. And you can already see the guilt in Anna at this young, young age that she's like, I can't cross the line though, because I promised Kate. I pinky promised. I swore I wouldn't go back on this promise. I made a deal and I can't back out of it. And that's a lot of resolve for a child as young as that. Because my brother and I tried to do something like that once and five minutes later he was like, screw this, I'm done. You know, most children don't abide by the line rule. And so Sarah realizes what's going on. She comes in, but rather than being like, girls, you need to learn to get along and taking the tape down, instead she comes in and she plays along and she puts these pillows across the floor. And is like, you know, this is still Kate's side of the room, but these are my pillows and they make a special mom bridge from your side of the room to the door so you can still leave. As if she's basically being like, you still have to keep your word to Kate, but I'm giving you an exception. I'm giving you an out. And it's this, it's this weird thing of like, she's playing in to, and I know it's a childish thing, it's just a silly little thing, and obviously it didn't stick because whenever there are teenagers, the line's not still there, so it's not like this became a complex, but it's a weird little thing that it's like, most parents would just say, Kate, you can't imprison your sister in your bedroom, but because she is so intent on coddling Kate, she has to find some creative way around this to be like, okay, how can I get Anna out of her room so that she can come eat lunch and do other things she needs to do without upsetting Kate. Because whatever I do, I can't tell Kate that whatever she's done is wrong. I hadn't thought about that scene that way. You're kind of right. Now, it's, it's written like it's supposed to be cute, but when you start to think about it, you're like, it's cute, but it also still speaks to that relationship. <laughs> yeah. It's also worth mentioning when Anna was born, it was not necessarily with the idea that she would one day donate a kidney to Kate. It was with the idea that the umbilical cord blood would be donated to Kate. Yeah, it's like, okay, umbilical cord, you know. You don't need the umbilical cord. It comes off of you right as you're born. Yeah. But the thing is, you really don't get the impression that Sarah wanted Anna at all. Just the blood. When Anna is born, all she asks about is, is the blood okay? Please get that precious blood to my precious baby. She hasn't even thought of a name for Anna yet, and she openly admits to the reader that she has not thought of Anna at all except as a method to save Kate, and she sticks with that. Yeah, there's also a, a remark made by one of the doctors that, you know, if she holds on for another minute or two and doesn't push and waits till the next contraction to push, Anna could actually be the first baby in this hospital born in the new year. 
And that could be like one good thing to make Anna feel special, you know? Being the first New Year's baby. Being the first baby born in 1994 or whatever this is. You know, it's not a big deal, but it's a little thing. And, you know, I'm not gonna diss on any woman for not wanting to be in labor longer, because I imagine that's not pleasant. <laughs> uh, you know, haven't done it myself yet, but I hear it's not the best experience of your life. But at the same time, it the way Sarah remarks about it, it's not like a, no, I want to meet my baby right now, or no, this hurts, or anything like that. It's absolutely not. I need to get this cord blood out of me as fast as possible so it can get to Kate. I don't want to waste any time. If I could have delivered this baby earlier, I would have. Also, the cord gets wrapped around Anna's neck, and all Sarah can think about is, oh no, the precious cord blood. <laughs> exactly. Like, she shows no concern when Anna almost dies in birth. <laughs> Yeah, like, Anna totally could have been choked by this cord, and as long as the cord still had circulation, she probably would have been fine. Brian would have been devastated. He loved his daughter. He really does love all of his children equally. But Sarah? Mmm. And she also talks frequently about how perfect her family was. She's like, my family is perfect. I love my perfect, perfect, perfect family. Before Kate is diagnosed. It's very clear that she says, as the phrase, you know, our family was complete. It's clear that Anna is an extra addition that she never wanted. Mm. Her family was complete. She didn't need another child. She didn't want another child. She had another child so she could keep the one she already had. That was it. From day one. Always. And her priorities never change? <laughs> never. We've talked a lot about Anna. Let's quickly move on to Kate. <laughs> Let's quickly move on to Kate because we are already well over an hour and we still have the ending to cover. Mm-hmm. So moving on to Kate, she's not a perfect parent to Kate either, because she coddles Kate and she overprotects Kate to the point that it hurts Kate. I mean, Kate is suicidal by the end of this book. She is ready to die. She has attempted to kill herself and she is ready to just die. She asks Anna to do this lawsuit and to not donate a kidney specifically so that she will die. Like, she's done. She's over it. And one of the big things that is just a huge no-no for me with Sarah and Kate is at one point, Kate gets a boyfriend. He's another cancer patient, and he and Kate have this nice little romance for a while. At one point, they get to go to this dance that the hospital holds. It's a cute little prom-type dance that they hold in the hospital for all the kids like Kate and her boyfriend who are too sick to go to school because their immune systems are compromised. Wear your masks. <laughs> so she goes to this dance with this boy and Sarah is there chaperoning and she's watching them and she's thinking how pretty Kate is and how nice it is that she has this boyfriend and stuff. And at one point the two of them sneak away to go have some alone time and Sarah follows them. And she overhears a conversation between the two of them where the boyfriend mentions that one of his biggest fears isn't dying, but that no one would come to his funeral. And Kate promises, I be there. I promise. If you die, I'll be at your funeral. And if I die, you'll be at my funeral. Promise, promise, promise. He dies three days later. And Sarah doesn't tell Kate. Sarah finds out from a nurse and she does not tell Kate. She contacts the family, sends her regards so that they won't contact Kate. She does not tell Kate for a whole month, therefore depriving Kate of the chance to go to his funeral because she is worried that the grief would make Kate not want to fight her cancer anymore. Mm. 
<laughs> this was one of those periods where Kate was, was having to fight cancer pretty hard, and she was just too afraid that the grief would hurt Kate, not realizing that this hurts way more because this is betrayal. This is betrayal on top of grief. Now, Kate has been deprived of the opportunity to say goodbye, and she's been deprived of granting the promise that was one of the last things she ever said to him, because that night was the last time she saw him before he died. And she didn't think he was going to die. He was in relatively good health at that point. He was doing better than Kate was. So she didn't really expect him to die. And she spent a month thinking he was ghosting her, wondering why he wasn't returning her calls, why he wasn't visiting her in chemo anymore, what she did wrong. Had he gotten bored of her? Did he not want to date a cancer girl anymore? What happened? And then she finally finds out that he's dead and she was deprived of the opportunity to say a final goodbye and keep her promise that she made to him the last time they ever spoke a dying promise i mean and sarah heard that promise so she knows she made that promise and i gotta say something about that pisses me off more than anything she did to jesse or anna because jesse and anna she only pretends to really care about them <laughs> But Kate, you get the feeling that she really does want what's best for Kate. And that she would do what is best for Kate. Oh yeah, she'll go to the ends of the earth for Kate. And so the fact that she betrays Kate in such a deep and intense way, it's disgusting. It is this intense, it's infantilizing. It is a, a betrayal, like you said. It's, it's just, it's bad. It makes my blood boil. It's just, ugh. And we'll add this to the list of things that Sarah never apologizes for. Yeah, she never apologizes for it. She never apologizes for it. It's it's mentioned in the chapter that it happens, and it's never mentioned again. It's never apologized for because Sarah doesn't say she's sorry. Sarah just does things. Sarah never, ever says she's sorry. And then the last thing that is just the big character flaw of Sarah, and this is a direct quote from Campbell Alexander. This is something he says while the psychologist is on the stand because he's trying to corner the psychologist and be like, hey, psychologist, you're talking about how the worst thing for this family would be for Kate to die. Don't you really mean the worst thing for Sarah would be for Kate to die? And he says about Sarah, quote, you might say she defines her own ability to be a good mother by keeping Kate healthy, end quote. And that is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. As far as Sarah is concerned, every other mistake she makes every other problem she has every other everything is acceptable as long as it leads to kate being in good health so you kind of feel like she got what she wanted by anna dying so kate could live at the end yeah because you know in the end anna died so kate could live wasn't that what she wanted all along mm -hmm. you know you can argue she never really wanted anna dead but she never really wanted her alive either but it doesn't feel like the book is supposed to be about punishing Sarah for her crimes as a mother. Yeah. The thing is, in the epilogue, which is our next note anyways, so we can move on to the epilogue. In the epilogue, everyone gets some kind of character development. Some of it good, some of it bad. Except for Sarah. For Sarah, we learn that she cried a lot after Anna died. And that's it. She truly doesn't change as a person over the course of this book. <laughs> and that's a big problem when you write a character that is this terrible and meant to be seen in a good light. Yeah, she's meant to be morally gray, but she's really not morally gray. She's thundercloud gray. Thunder... <laughs> thundercloud gray. She's morally thundercloud gray. You know those really dark, 
heavy pendulous. <laughs> you know, those, those really scary thunderclouds that you see him coming and you're like, well, batten down the hatches. That's the kind of morally gray she is. Not like, oh, she's a little morally gray, la-di-da. Like, she's scary. <laughs> so let's... Oh, wait, I want to mention one thing just about the way Jodie Picoult chose to write Sarah. Mm-hmm. So you've heard the list of all the terrible things that Sarah has done, and believe me, this is not an all-inclusive list. There's no. more. Every time Sarah does something terrible to one of her children, we will immediately get a chapter from her point of view showing Kate's cancer journey. Mm-hmm. As if to say, I know this looks bad, but I'm a cancer mom. <laughs> yes. Always, always, always. And it feels like the author is trying to excuse the abuse that she's putting her children through. Yeah, we never get any scenes where she makes up things to her children or where she's good to her other children. It's always the same thing of Kate is sick and therefore we have to forgive Sarah for whatever awful thing she did in the last scene. You know, oh, she just slapped Anna? Well, hey. Kate has cancer. Kate has cancer. So, what's that? Jesse's doing drugs and he just uh had to birth a live lamb on his own we'll get into that later well kate has cancer and then she goes to her sister and calls herself a martyr (laughs) she does she specifically talks about things like the word mother sounding like the word martyr and how simply the act of being a mother makes you a martyr which is just so disgusting to me it's so gross Oh, I... mm, Maybe this is my own trauma talking or something, but I cannot stand mothers who are like, I gave everything for my children, and they gave me nothing in return. It's like, you didn't have to have them. You know, children don't give you anything in return. That's, That's how children work. For the first 18 years at least, they don't give you anything in return, except for love and joyful child smiles and grief and that's what you signed up for i think she squandered her chances for unconditional love (laughs) yeah yeah there's no unconditional love happening with these children because you you made it clear to jesse when he was four years old that he's come second now you made it clear to Anne on the day she was born she she there's one scene where you know uh brian gives anna a necklace as kind of like a thank you for donating bone marrow present And she remarks that she never once thought that it might be a good idea to thank Anna for all of this. Never occurred to her. (laughs) Never occurred to her. So, speaking of Sarah, we've talked about her character development. Character development for every character in this book, except maybe Campbell Alexander, is non-existent until the epilogue. There is no character development until the epilogue. And that is deeply unsatisfying. When you spend... 300 plus pages with people and they make no progress and then in the last two pages you're told like and this person did this and this person did that and they changed their whole personality it's like why couldn't i see that i'm just gonna give a brief rundown again of the epilogue and what happens to everyone in the epilogue after anna dies campbell and julia get married that's it for them yay jesse as i said before becomes a cop. The last time we saw Jesse, he just blew up a school. Mm-hmm. It was an empty school. It was summertime and there was no one there. But still, an elementary school with a bomb. And then he went into a football field and screamed in the rain for God to strike him down with lightning. 
and that was the last time we saw him, and now he's a cop. That's terrifying. That is really scary. You assume that something must have happened in that eight years between that scene and the epilogue when he became a cop that, you know, made him change his ways, but all we've seen him do (laughs) is commit arson, do drugs, watch the Playboy channel with his tween sister, creepy, um, hit on older women, and trick drug-addicted homeless men into being his accomplices in his many crimes. Oh, and he stole a car at one point. He stole several cars, actually. He stole several cars. Most of them are construction cars, but one of them is a Humvee belonging to a judge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he really messes up a lot. And it's one of those things that you're like, if he had been just a couple months older, he would have had a permanent record. You know, his juvie record must have gotten completely expunged. But like, if he'd been just a little bit older, he never could have been a cum cop because he would have had too much of a friggin' record. It just comes off like a serial arsonist infiltrated the police force. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't give me comfort. <laughs> also, he was a drug addict and now he works in narcotics. Which is one of those things that, like, if we got to see that progression, be like, maybe he became a narcotics cop because he wants to help misguided children like himself and help them get clean and whatever. Like, maybe he went through a really long rehab situation. But we don't get to see any of that. So it's like, is he still on drugs? Did he join narcotics so that he could turn in his old dealers and stuff and then take their drugs? (laughs) Is he a snitch now? Is that what happened? Is he actually a cop or is he just like a CI? Like, (laughs) snitches get stitches, (laughs) The real tragedy of that situation is that the reason you're kind of led to believe he turned his life around is because his father catches him with the ingredients to make the same explosive that went off in the school. By the way, side note, I don't think authors should have exact recipes for how to make homemade explosive devices in their novels. (laughs) I don't know if that's gonna be a controversial statement, but she gives ingredient lists, amounts, where to find these ingredients in a non-suspicious manner, and this sold millions of copies. Mm-hmm. She also tells you the exact process of like, you know, you need to boil this and then mix it with this and then add this and then you need to leave it for this long. Yeah, I want to give most people the benefit of the doubt, but this just seems unnecessarily dangerous. It's <laughs> like she took a leaflet out of the anarchist cookbook or something. <laughs> but the point is, he gets caught with all that. His father confronts him about being the arsonist and he's been putting out fires for him. He cries and his dad's like, I'm never going to let this happen again. I'll make sure of it. But his father has also repeatedly throughout this book swept everything under the rug from his wife hitting his child to one of his child attempting to snuff out the other. And then immediately after this, you find out in the epilogue that he becomes an alcoholic for a good long while. So when is he going to be helping Jesse? At least if Jesse had become a firefighter, it would have made sense for his character as someone who's interested and clearly well-educated in fire, as well as it would have showed that he spent a lot of time with his father following the tragedy of Anna's death. And then I would have believed it. Mm -hmm. But instead, it's like, no, he became a cop. And it's like, so did his father ever do anything other than destroy the evidence once he realized that Jesse was the arsonist? Because we do actively see him destroy evidence. You know, he clearly wasn't watching Jesse the next day after they had their heart to heart and Jesse went to go back to the crime scene and scream at the rain. Mm-hmm. So 
when? When was he watching Jesse? When was he making sure Jesse turned his life around? You don't get the feeling that he actually did. You get the feeling that Jesse did it on his own. If Jesse always had the ability to do it on his own, then why didn't he sooner? Mm-hmm. Why didn't he turn his life around after he almost killed someone? Why did he blow up a school after that? Mm-hmm. It's like none of it really makes sense mm-hmm. for Jesse's character arc. Uh, meanwhile, Brian, like we said, he becomes an alcoholic. Because, you know, once one of your children actually dies, you can't sweep that under the rug anymore. So sweep yourself under the rug with booze instead. Mm-hmm. It's just so disappointing during the court scene. After you see Brian remove Anna from the home, you see him start to stand up for his, or himself to his wife. And then when he's on the stand, he says, I still believe Anna should donate the kidney. Anna looks completely devastated. He then moves her back in so that we can get a very uncomfortable sex scene with him and his wife showing that this act has brought them closer together again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's ruined the court case for Anna. Uh, you know, Campbell has to really pull out all the stops to save this, because, you know, that was his ace in the hole. But, yay, he's making love with his wife? This, this wasn't about that. <laughs> it's also a really awkward sex scene, because at one point he says something, and it, like, apparently really kills the mood for Sarah. So then she's like, don't talk anymore, just, you know, put it in. But that's the problem with this family, they don't talk to each other about their problems. Yeah, it's just, it's very... It's very uncomfortable and very weird, and it's just, Brian, Brian doesn't have any character development either. He's very, like, I'm just gonna cover everything up. I want, he ha- he always has his escapes. Either he's working all the time, or he's doing his, uh, his astronomy thing, or he's, you know, by the epilogue, he's drinking. You know, he's always doing something to distract himself from whatever is happening at home. And also, he he has the same problem as Sarah of not accepting help. Because at one point, uh, they need money. They need money for a procedure that Kate needs. And Sarah's sister, Zan, which I think is short for Suzanne, (laughs) she offers to give them the money. She has the money. She is very well off. You could say she was rich. You could say this doesn't affect her at all. Yeah, she's like one percenter. She's like, I have the money. Here is the money. And he's like, no, no, we don't need the money because actually I put out word around the firehouse and a bunch of firefighters from all over the country donated money and now we have enough. This is a lie. He actually emptied out Kate's college fund to pay for this. His argument being, she's not actually going to be around long enough to use it for college. He puts their whole family into debt then, trying to pay for more things. And his reasoning behind all of this is, he, as the father and as the man, is supposed to provide for his family. So he lets his own macho, I need to be the provider, I need to be the breadwinner, I've got to take care of my family, herp-a-derp-a-derp, to hurt his family worse. Now, he puts and, their family into financial jeopardy because he won't accept help. Because yeah, he's too proud to accept help from a family member who can and wants to help them, who loves Kate as much as they do and is as invested in her survival. But he's like, you know, I choose debt 
I choose debt because pride. And he lies to his wife about it. Mm-hmm. And then it's never brought up again, so you assume he also managed to sweep that under the rug. <laughs> yeah, as always. He'd be sweeping everything. I think this was one of the only times that I actually thought he was kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. It's because, like, really? You're gonna lie to your wife and put your family into financial jeopardy because you won't accept help? And then, as we said, Sarah has no no character arc in the epilogue. She cried a lot. The end. That is all Kate gives us, because the epilogue is told from Kate's point of view. That's all Kate gives us as far as what happened with Sarah, was she cried and cried and cried for months, and that's it. And Kate is not really a character in her own right in this book. She is more like a prop for a lot of other people to use. So when the epilogue is told from her point of view, it's not really character development because she wasn't really a character in her own right beforehand. So seeing her epilogue, we can't really say like, oh, she developed this or she developed that aside from, you know, she's not suicidal anymore, so that's good. <laughs> this is the only chapter told from Kate's point of view. And it doesn't make any sense that Kate survived, okay? <laughs> it doesn't. It makes zero sense. And here's the thing. Jodie Picoult likes having shocking twist endings. Oh, they are her favorite. They are her favorite. They usually don't work. But they got your attention. Mm -hmm. And she really didn't need to kill Anna at the end. Because she already got her shocking twist during the court case. When Anna admits that she's doing this not only for herself, but for Kate. Because Kate knows that she is going to die very soon and is tired of fighting it and wants to go out peacefully. <laughs> this is the main theme of the book that we have spent hundreds and hundreds of pages building up to. Do children have the right to make decisions autonomously about their own bodies? <laughs> Does Anna have the right to say no to a kidney donation? Does Kate have the right to refuse medical treatment? <laughs> because as an adult, if you have cancer, that is a choice you have. You can choose to refuse life-saving treatment. You can say, I don't want a kidney transplant. I don't want any of this. You can sign a DNR. You can do all of that. And Kate is not being given that option. Mm -hmm. And so we have this twist, and on one hand, it does develop the theme of autonomy more, but you also retroactively, when you go back and reread the story, you realize that when it came to Anna, this was always a twist that was planned. So because of that, we never truly know Anna's motivation for doing this until it comes out in the later end of the third act of the book, when you get the twist. And you feel that emotional distance from Anna as a character. You feel like something is missing the entire time that you are reading things from her perspective. And it's frustrating. <laughs> but it kind of paid off for the twist until we had twist two, which is after all of this, <laughs> after all the fighting, all the crying, everything that Jodie Picoult has done as the author to tell you that yes, Anna has the right to her own body and Kate has the right to refuse treatment is then shattered by and then Anna died the end and Kate miraculously recovered from cancer. So maybe Anna and Kate shouldn't have been so damn pessimistic. Yeah. <laughs> is that really the moral that we're supposed to come away from this? Sometimes bad things happen and we can't control it. And no, children really shouldn't be making any decisions for themselves. No, you don't have the right to your body. No, you shouldn't complain or try to think about all the pain you've experienced so far. Mm -hmm. 
because all you need to cure cancer is the soul of your dead sibling. <laughs> that really is how it feels because the doctors stress over and over that Kate is probably not even strong enough for this transplant. That she's already struggling to just stay alive as it is that they need to do a ton of things just to prep her for this transplant, that they will only approve this transplant if it comes from Anna, which is why they can't put her on a donor list because they need an exact match. Because even though, you know, you don't need an exact, exact match for kidneys, you want like a close match and the chances of rejection are higher, the less accurate the match is, so they want the exact match from Anna. And, you know, they keep pushing this idea of like, even if we do this kidney transplant and even if Kate survives it, which she probably won't, it's not a cure, and it might not save her. It might not even put her in remission. All it's going to do is help us with the single issue that we have right now, which is that some of the medications we have given her to treat her cancer are now causing her to go into kidney failure. But then Anna dies and the kidney transplant works miraculously. They, they briefly mentioned in the epilogue that it took a couple years for Kate to like fully come back out of it and that for a few months there she was like rough. But even still, it does lead this idea of, you know, well, maybe it wouldn't have worked if Anna had survived, but because she died, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it makes no sense. Why would this have even put her into remission in the first place? I'm not even sure if it did put her into remission. I think it just stopped the kidney failure long enough that she could survive to get more treatment to go into remission. She was on death's door, and then the cancer never comes back after this? It's just unbelievable. Yeah, and they mentioned that this type of cancer that she has only has like a 20% recovery rate, and even if you recover, you're likely to relapse within like two years or something. I think it was even lower. I think the survival rate was like 3-5%. to 5%. Yeah. There was no reason for Kate to survive her cancer after this. That was the point of the lawsuit. One of many points of it was that this will not help Kate. Kate's going to die anyway. Yeah. This is the first organ to go. There will be more. And then she miraculously survived, goes into remission, never has cancer again, and then becomes a ballerina. And she never ever needs any kind of treatment ever again. Hallelujah. I think what burns me up about the most is that Joel D.P. Colt insists that this was the most realistic way to end her story. Yeah, she swears that she was on the phone with cancer nurses and stuff, like, asking if there was any way that this could end differently and all kinds of things. It's like, no. The most realistic way to end your book was with a freak accident that miraculously killed your main character so that your least developed character could live. <laughs> shattering your message of autonomy. <laughs> and the method by which Anna dies isn't even, like, poetic. It's not like she, you know, ends up killing herself for, you know, something stupid like that that, you know, at least maybe could make sense. She dies in a horrible hockey accident. Mm -hmm. I don't know. She gets hit by a car that is being driven by a rando. Even if it was something like she got hit by a car that was being driven by Jesse because he stole it. Even that could have done something. Or she died in a fire. Anything like that. But it's just that she gets hit by a car. Because it was raining and we told you five times in very close succession <laughs> in those exact words. 
It's raining. Oh, yes. In the last section, every single chapter for five chapters straight, no, seven chapters straight, it's from all the POV characters, every single chapter starts with the phrase, it's raining. And that's the only lead up we get to Anna's death. Meanwhile, Kate's death has been foreshadowed the entire book. Yeah, Jesse has this really intense scene where he talks about uh, this this intense moment he had when he was 14 and, you know, his parents had given up on him and they decided that, you know, they need to just get rid of him for a summer. So they sent him away to this farm for troubled youth. <laughs> and his job was to be basically a shepherd. He had to walk around with all the lambs. Like, he's Moses. <laughs> this will fix his trauma. Because, <laughs> you know, that's the issue. Um, and all of a sudden he realizes that one of these sheep is giving birth. And he's like, oh my god, the sheep is giving birth. And it's breech. So, you know, you got this sheep with, like, two hooves sticking out of it. And he freaks out and he grabs the hooves and he yanks and he pulls this lamb out of this sheep. And it comes out with the umbilical sack still stuck around its face. And he rips the sack off and, you know, kind of slaps it for a minute. And then... <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, it, it stops, it, it wakes up, and it's like, bah, and it starts running around. And he mentions that, you know, for a moment, it had this really glazed over dead look in its eyes. And he's looking at Kate, who is, you know, laying in her hospital bed, and he mentions that she has that same look in her eyes that the lamb did when it was dying. And maybe that could be considered foreshadowing of her miraculous recovery, because the lamb gets up and runs around. But it really feels in the moment like it's foreshadowing of her death. Mm -hmm. Especially because it gets paired up with so many other moments where people talk about her death and how she's gonna die and how Anna has such a long, long life to lead. You know, they talk about Anna having this bright future ahead of her if it wasn't for Kate. They talk about all the future that Anna's gonna miss out on because of Kate. And in the end, Anna does not miss out on a bright future because of Kate. She misses out on a bright future because of rain. <laughs> because of rain. And Kate becomes a ballet teacher. And never, ever, 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 ever gets sick ever again. Happy ending for everybody. Except Anna. So sad. Except Anna, the main character that this entire book was about. Frankly, I feel so cheated every time I read this ending. Because we have invested so much time into Anna's story. And then it's like, and then she died. Battle show her. The end. Yeah, it's like God saw her driving away from her court case and was like, fuck this. Zap. Final nitpicks. If there's any to go over. Kate and Anna are both low-key sexualized by their parents um, throughout this story. And it's creepy. I've written a couple of quotes for example, there's a moment when Kate comes home from a date with her boyfriend and Sarah is listening to her, you know, get ready for bed and everything. And she says, I imagine her stripping off her clothes. I wonder if Taylor is imagining the same somewhere. Taylor is the boyfriend. That to me is just a really creepy thing for a mother to think. Yeah, that, that's creepy. It's unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, just sitting there listening to your daughter getting ready for bed and you're like, She's getting naked. I wonder if her boyfriend is thinking about her getting naked right now. I bet he is. <laughs> um, and then also, in Brian's first chapter, he describes Anna in this way. Quote, She's not stick straight anymore. She's got the beginnings of curves. Even her motions, tucking her hair behind her ear, 
peering into the telescope, have a sort of grace I associate with full-grown women. That is your thirteen-year-old daughter, sir. No. No, stop talking about her curves. Stop it. She does not have the grace of a full-grown woman. (laughs) She does not. She is a thirteen-year-old girl. And I understand what you're trying to say is that she's mature for her age because of all the burden that she's had, but the adultification of teenage girls simply because they've been through trauma is disturbing as hell and I hate it, but it's gross. I have a nitpick as well about Julia's character. (laughs) When Julia is talking to Seven in the bar about how shitty her life is, (laughs) she drops in that she was sexually assaulted. It serves nothing to the plot or story, and frankly, the way it's brought up is just callous. (laughs) Yeah. And unnecessary. Yeah, because he asks how many people she's been with. And she says, I've been with three and a half men. And the half is the sexual assault. Mm-hmm. She talks about it in a way as though she somewhat blames herself for what happened. Yeah, she describes that she she was real drunk and she woke up with him on top of her. And that's why she calls it a half, because she doesn't remember actually have, having sex with him. She just remembers him rolling off of her. But that was sexual assault. Yeah, it's like, that's, that's rape, my friends. You're somewhat aware of it because you're giving it a half, but was this really necessary? I feel like when an author portrays sexual assault, they have an obligation to all the people who experience this out in the world to treat the issue with a certain amount of class and respect. Yeah. And when it's dropped in, it should at least contribute something to the character. Yeah, this almost felt like it was played for a joke. Yes. You know, saying, you know, oh, it was, it was just a half. <laughs> you know, I drink too much, just like I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah, because like, that's the other thing. She's super drunk and she's trying to seduce Seven as this is happening. So it's almost like she's trying to say, you know, oh, three and a half, you know, because I was really drunk. Like I am now. Wink, wink. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm easy. No, this, you were unconscious. <laughs> you know you were unconscious. If you're going to have this in your book, it should at least affect Julia on a character level, but it doesn't. Like many other critiques we've mentioned so far, it never gets brought up again. You could cut this out and nothing would change. And that's not the way you should handle sexual assault when writing a novel. Yeah, and I feel like maybe it's supposed to speak to Julia's torrid sexual past, but we get other examples of that, that we don't need this one unless we're going to go into more details. Because we do talk about the first man that she slept with after Campbell, because Campbell was her first time when they were in high school. And what broke her heart so much was that they had sex, they were together, they were in love, and then he got into this horrible car accident and he developed epilepsy and he chose to just ghost her and never tell her about it because he had this super ableist idea in his mind that he would be ruining her life if he made her be with an epileptic man you know rather than giving her a choice again coming back to that theme of choice and autonomy rather than giving her a choice of deciding what she wanted he made the choice for her and that's why it's so awkward when they see each other again 15 years later because they've been like actively avoiding each other and he's never told her the real reason why he dumped her so she thinks he just basically treated her like a conquest And therefore, she has a very troubled sexual history. Because right after she slept with him, and he ghosted her, she then immediately went off and had a series of one-night stands. Then this date rape happened while she was in college. And then she lived with a man who was, like, not nice to her for several years. You see that she has a lot of bad relationships and a lot of bad sexual experiences. And it's kind of 
partially Campbell's fault. He's influenced that by being, you know, so insecure about his disability. But because the sexual assault is brought up so briefly, like her one night stand that she had a week after he ghosted her is given so much more time. It's given almost a whole chapter of its own, but the sexual assault is given a sentence. (laughs) It's like, are you going to address this at all? Are you going to address your drinking problem for that matter? Because we see you drinking a lot. (laughs) Like a lot. Frankly, the romance between Campbell and Julia is a big distraction to the overall narrative. It is. Thematically, it kind of goes with it, but we spend so much of the third act, which drags on and on with just the weight of the history between these two characters, which is disconnected and far removed from Anna's story and the court case happening right now. And so it just comes off as a big distraction. And Julia doesn't even really help Anne in the end, because her conclusion, after doing very little to speak to this family... Yeah, she sits maybe a half hour with each person. Sarah refuses to talk to her, and she never criticizes Sarah for refusing to talk to her. But her conclusion is, this is a difficult situation, there's no right answers, no I don't think her parents can make unbiased decisions about her health, but I also don't think she's mature enough for her age to do it for herself, so really, I got no idea. Yeah, which, you know, the answer is obvious then in that situation, and it's what the judge ends up deciding to do, which is give her a medical power of attorney, in this case, Campbell, because he is a non-biased third party who already has a relationship with her, and he can make medical decisions for her. That's also a big moment for Campbell in his character development. He is one of the only characters that has real character development in this story, because not only does he have character development of coming to terms with his disability, because he does eventually come around to telling Julia about his disability and, you know, fixing their issues. And he even has this moment at one point where, like, somebody, after the disability thing has happened with Julie and she knows somebody does the service dog thing again of like you know oh you know what's the service dog for and he briefly considers telling the truth saying he's a seizure dog and he ends up choosing not to because he decides it's more fun to mess with people (laughs) but he's not doing it anymore because he's ashamed he's doing it because it's fun now so you know he's dealing with his issues and he, another part of his character development is he's never had to take care of anybody before. He's barely had to take care of himself and his dog. And when he agrees to be medical power of attorney for Anna, he's taking responsibility for another human. That is a big moment of development for him. But then it's destroyed by the fact that he, the moment he gets medical attorney of her, he kills her! <laughs> Because he's driving around in the car, and he's the one driving the car when she dies, and he's the one who decides to pull the plug on her. So, basically, it's like, here's some responsibility. Oh my god, I have all this responsibility. What do I do with it? What do I do with it? Oh, it's gone. Bye! <laughs> like, it doesn't even really add up to anything. It's not fair. Let's talk. Do, are, do we have any more nitpicks, or do we want to talk closing thoughts? That's it. Let's talk closing thoughts. Let's talk closing thoughts. Jodie Picoult has delivered us a moral dilemma on autonomy and told us that it's about the love between two sisters. Perhaps what she intended was this to be a story about the love between two sisters, but the time spent between Kate and Anna on the page is so minimal 
compared to the amount of time debating Anna's right to make her own medical decisions. Eventually, we realize it's also about Kate's right to medical choice as well. She wants the option to refuse a donation, and the moral dilemma is so much more compelling in the way that Picoult wrote it than the emotional conflict of Anna wanting to do right by her sister. Meanwhile, the family dynamic makes the parents unsympathetic by the end of the book. We see so many examples of Sarah hurting her other children in order to put Kate first, hurting Kate to try to do what she thinks is best, and all the while not taking any responsibility for the damage she has caused. Brian ignores everything in the hopes that it will all go away, choosing to focus on what he knows he can control. And the result is three damaged children and two parents who think they're doing their best. The fact that all the character development happens after Anna dies in an epilogue is the essence of a tragedy, but it does not feel earned. I truly feel cheated by the end of this. Mm-hmm. Me too. Final ratings. Based on personal enjoyment. <laughs> Based on personal enjoyment, just final ratings out of out of five. What do you give it? I give it three out of five kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna give it one out of five service dog paws. Or one and a half. One and a half out of five service dog paws. As always, our ratings are subjective. This is entirely based on our own opinions. If you'd like to let us know your notes, you can follow us at Twitter, at Couple of Notes. And to supply us with red pens and new books, you can support us on Patreon. www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet back here after the next chapter. Bye! Bye!